Sponsorship of the KQED live audio stream comes from Xfinity Mobile, featuring customized wireless plans. Customers can choose unlimited, buy the gig, shared data, or a mix of both and switch it up anytime. Learn more at XfinityMobile.com. My name is Veronica Gonzalez. I'll be reading from the second part of my novel, Twin Time, or How Death Befell Me. In this section of the book, our narrator, Mona, is trying to figure her father out, come to some sense of who he is and how he became the way he is. I'll be reading from three very short chapters. The first is called A Father Revealed. All fathers have fathers, but my father's father had barely known his. The old man was orphaned in youth, so my father's father had not been a good father for he had never known a good father himself. My father, I know, suffered the results of this. My grandfather, raised by a rich aunt, was a spoiled and lazy colonial grandson, for he himself was the offspring of Irish or Scottish stock, mixed, of course, as all Mexicans are, with the Indians who were already there. He was never around, drank a lot, was probably always searching for something himself so that he had nothing to offer my father. And my father had always had to take care of himself. Some people say, I always took care of myself. But my father did. He actually did. He was a boy man who figured things out on his own. He was good with his hands, and as a tiny boy sold woven bracelets and necklaces which he himself made out of multicolored string and pretty glass beads like an old Indian woman had shown him to do. She had done it once in front of the strange and curious pretty little boy, while he watched with soft white eyes, and then she'd laughed as, with a thin and eager arm, he reached for some of her yarn. His small hands mimicked her skilled motions, and when he had finished making his first bracelet, she patted at his little tangled head, and he beamed up at her with his long-lashed five-year-old pride. He sold them at the big, noisy marketplace out of a little straw basket this woman gave him, and every week he would go and buy his yarn and beads from her and sit at her side where they wove in the silence of their work he occasionally glancing over and then staring at her serious Indian face, her long black braids, she lifting her hand to pat at his head from time to time. After more than a year of this quiet time of beads and yarn, one of the older boys who wandered the marketplace one day came up and shoved him and brusquely told him that was Sissy's work. What was he, a fag? And then with grimy fingers and a permanent sneer taught him how to do simple magic tricks to entertain the few tourists and all other adults of the small town. He would walk up to them at their lunch tables or as they sat lazily sipping at cold beer at one of the several outdoor restaurants which surrounded the main square, the Socalo. Father did make more money with his speedy hands in this way and he loved the grown-up wonder and laughter he caused by making a peso disappear into thin air. This disappeared money would reappear at home where he gave some to his father and held on to the rest with which he bought their food. He cooked this food he bought. He had learned how to cook very young, because if he didn't cook, he and his father might not eat. There had been a woman, not a surrogate mother, but a woman whom my grandfather had brought home one cold night. I brought her home for you, my grandfather had once slurred at my father. But this woman, 
with her taut and angry arms, tight hard body and grimacing, missing-toothed face, had not liked my father, and she didn't get much of anything from my grandfather, not love or even affection, which is what we imagine she must have most wanted from him, but not money either, which would have probably been just fine too. So when my father was six or seven or such, she had gotten fed up and gone out on her own. Tell your father he is a disgrace, she turned and hissed at the boy as she shoved his head with her bony hand, and then scurried briskly out the door of that once beautiful, now decrepit, colonial home. She had taught him to cook, though, or rather, my father had learned by sitting very still in the corner of the kitchen. He knew not to disturb her, for the ugly, that is what he secretly called her, the ugly didn't mind raising her hand to him, and so he sat silent, silent and watching what the ugly did with her fast and able hands. How could someone as hateful as her make such delectable food? There must be something in her, if hidden deep down deep within. There must be some small bit of warmth and goodwill with which she created such wonderful, sense-delighting dishes. And after she left for good, my father mimicked her moves, chopping and mashing, boiling and frying, as he had done just a few years before with the Indian woman of the serious face and dyed yarn bracelets. His father never thanked him, not for the coins which my father left piled by his pants there on the chair, not for the rice and soups and various stews which my father put on the table every night, not for being a boy man who didn't ask for anything and who gave, gave, gave like a saint or a masochist or a very sad and unloved child. My father working and doing, his little nimble hands making things, magic things happen, all of this from out of nothing. By the time he was nine, he started finding real work, picking fruit with those very quick hands on a ranch one town away, pounding intricate designs into tin at a tinsmith's two towns away. Through this tinsmith, he met a man who made papier-mâché masks three or four towns away, and in whispered secrecy, this man offered father more money than the smith. The tourists who came to his shop would like the sight of the skinny, hard-working boy, their pity pushing them to bigger and bigger purchases, this mask-maker knew. And so, like this, my father started to wander the land, over mountains and through valleys, town to town, job to job, but he always came back to his own town so that he could spend at least some time with his father, look at his face, and wonder at his steps, cook for him a bit. By the time he was 14, my father had made it to Acapulco on the back of a truck with two or three other boys from his small town, the one of the magic tricks and permanent sneer having convinced them all to hitch along. They rode back there, their tanned skin crackling in the sun, their joshing, shoving laughter carrying them along. The sneering magic trick boy's older brother was a front desk clerk at one of the big hotels, and he got them all jobs as bellhops, feet trained to run forth at the sound of clink, clink. Of this time, I've seen a picture. My father young and strong with big, beautiful eyes, a shy smile, and those long legs of youth, standing straight and proud with puffed chest on a cliff, the lissom, salty sea spreading, spreading out below him. This is a time that I've heard of, 
a time he could be prodded to speak of in detail, a happy time. My father learning broken English from the tourists and drinking in the sun and the cheap beer. My father having reached the ocean on his own, running around with other bellhops, wild with the breadth of possibility and his own strength at having reached. In that picture, I can see that his eyes shine with the light of his own self, the fire of opportunity. the rescue. He is lying under the shade of a palm frond umbrella, propped up on a lounge with his upper chest and head shielded from the sun, there in the thick summer heat of that crowded beach. This is an Acapulco of mostly Mexican tourists, Americans sprinkled sparingly between. Though snaking themselves between these thousands of vacationing bathing suit bodies are the countless hard-toil men and women for whom it never ends. Work is now, and ever, and always, and so they approach insistent carrying their wares, coconuts employed in every possible way, with a straw for drinking or in chunks for eating or as oil for rubbing on your body to help that tan and smell so good. Men sell colorful hammocks, too, though no room to hang them here, and women carry tiny shell figurines of dogs or fish or cats, coral necklaces and pretty earrings, three or four in each hand, and they look you in the eye and walk toward you authoritative as if you've already purchased what they've got. So don't even glance at them, he has been warned, though he does not heed. Not a man to look away, he takes everything in, and as a result has a big pile of souvenirs to carry home there at his side. And there are what must be a million children running in and out of lapping water and screeching back and forth, and the teenage girls have long black hair, sinewy sea-salt dripping whips. Dressed in white, not a drop of sweat waiters appear right when he needs them and bring him more and more beer for just one of those coins. So inexpensive he gives a tip of two. And he is happy, if a bit lonely, surrounded by that crowd, propped up, looking on the observational eye from under his umbrella, when from that shade he sees my father. He sees the boy shyly taunting and laughing with the other rougher six. He stares at their open laughter, gazes at the prodding, flailing limbs, emphatic tossing of arms, playfully kicking joyful legs. Those boys are a loosely defined group, some coming, others going, shoving each other pretty roughly and running in and out of waves. The older two or three look direct and confrontational at every girl that walks their way while they hungry gulp from sweating beers. But he looks familiar, that boy. The quietest one on the edge of the group. Yes, he has seen him at his hotel. The bellhop. That one with the big eyes and shy laugh is the boy who carried his bags up to his room. Come here, boy, he says to my father at the beach. Father walks up to the American, who's called out to him, pointing at himself and with his eyebrows raised up in the form of a question. Who, me, his eyes ask? 
Ah, I know you, says my father in his broken English before the man has a chance to speak. And today he is feeling nice and easy, so he goes on with his chat. You gave me a good tip, he nods. But you made me work for it, my father adds, and then he rubs at his arm, at the muscle. Still hurts, he jokes. The man laughs, and then he asks my father questions about his work, his family, his life. And finally, he asks the most important of the questions. Have you studied? the man asks. Don't you want to learn a trade? Father said no to the first and yes to the second of those two questions, with a gentle nodding of the head. So this man took him to the U.S. on his return, to attend high school in a big city far away. He stayed there for two years, for Father already had a way of living. He had a way of wandering from town to town and two years in this man's home, with rules of when to get up and where to go and what to do and how to think and how to be and when to act were enough. All this imposed structure did not seem worth more than the two years it took my father to learn some skills and to speak in a new tongue. Or perhaps it was that he missed his own father, my grandfather, or one of a million other possible reasons, something about the quality of the sun. And so, enveloped in the mystery of his motives, he snuck out of his bedroom window one dark night and hitched and walked his way back to his own town, where he arrived filthy and wild-eyed after his week's voyage of backward retreat. This, too, is my father, so that he had not just been the man of the intense love of my mother, the sorrowful longing for her after she'd gone. He had been a young man who had eyes that others took in, who made choices and wandered and yearned and laughed and explored. He had not just been the sad and heavy father I had known. It is sometimes hard for me to remember all of this. To subscribe to the Writer's Block and hear more stories, please visit www.kqed.org slash writer's block. The Writer's Block is produced by KQED.